right, good morning. We're going to go ahead and get started. Those of you watching online, good morning to you. We are going to switch things up today, and uh, I'm going to preach first, and then we're going to sing. So those of you that come in a little bit late, if I'm already in the middle of the sermon, sorry. All right, so we're going to switch it up a little bit. Uh, just a couple of announcements to remind you of. If you're new with us uh, watching online, we would love to connect with you. Uh, on Facebook, I think there's a link in the a pinned comment that you can click on. If not, you can just go to lansdown.church, and there's a button you can click on that says connect. Um, my name is Jeff, if you're watching, and I haven't met you, and I'm the pastor, and so uh, I'm glad you, again, glad you're with us today. Those of us in the room, glad we're here as well. Um, and I would expect, as normally happens, there'll be a, a small trickle of folks who come in a little bit later, uh, because I know from my perspective up here, a lot of times I'll be singing and then when I come back up and turn back around, there's like more people in the room than there was last time I turned. So um, we'll be looking forward to uh, more folks joining us as well. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and get started right into uh, the sermon. And so if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 over probably the next couple weeks. Um, I think I've told you this before, when I write a sermon, I look at the word count and I try to keep it to about... 3,500 words or so, because I know that's roughly the right amount of time. Uh, today, we're at like 4,800 words. So I'm not sure if we're going to get through everything or not, but uh, we're going to give it our best shot. But we're in this series where we're talking through some of the issues and topics we need to know, just as a reminder, um, in order for us in particular to become, uh, once again, a fully accredited church. But then also, it's just uh, a lot of pastors right now are doing this kind of thing because we're regathering. Uh, as churches, and so we've realized that it's a good time to kind of talk through some of this stuff once again. And so 1 Timothy 3, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13 again over the next couple of weeks, but probably just mostly 1 through 7 today. So I'm going to move fairly quickly through kind of some bullet points. And uh, before we get started, I, just want to, I do just want to set up this topic um, that we're going to get into today. We're going to talk about elders mostly today. And what I want to do is set up uh, kind of a topic that there's a lot of debate around in kind of the church world. Um, among pastors and among different denominations and churches, there's a lot of uh, debate around this topic. There probably always has been, and there is right now uh, in particular. Uh, some of that's cultural. Some of that is just the way things are going. Uh, but even in our denomination, there is a long discussion uh, happening, and that discussion is, is specifically happening over the role of men and women in, in the church, okay? And so I'm kind of giving you this long caveat at the beginning of this teaching, um, and I, I know I've said this before, but in the world of doctrine, uh, which is one of the things that the elders help to oversee and lead in a church, uh, there are certain issues that we would call close-handed issues, okay? There are certain things that if you are outside of what has historically been part of the church's doctrine, you are outside of historic Orthodox Christianity, okay? And so those are closed-handed issues, things like Jesus is fully God and fully man. He was born of a virgin. Uh, he died. And if, if some of that start, starts to sound familiar... Um, these are what many would call the essentials or what uh, in the book of Jude, he might call it the faith once delivered. Uh, and so if you're wondering what are the essentials of Christianity, maybe I haven't thought about it ever or in a long time, what I would point you actually to do is to read the ancient ecumenical creeds. If you don't know what I'm talking about, um, that would be the simple one would be the Apostles' Creed. There's a one that's a little bit more complex that we know as the Nicene Creed. Uh, and so if you read those and you affirm the creeds, you are basically within the bounds of historic Orthodox Christianity of what has been accepted as the church's essential doctrine for centuries. Uh, and so just to give you a sneak peek of the future, I'm actually starting to work on a series on the Apostles' Creed because I think that's a really helpful uh, just thing to work through because you get some church history, you get some theology, and it's all based on uh, the biblical text. Um, but there's other issues that we would call open-handed issues. Um, a classic example of an open-handed issue that's a hotly debated one, depending on where you are, the doctrine of predestination or election. Uh, this would not fall under... Uh, I, I would argue this would not fall under the close-handed category. So some of us in this room probably differ on this a little bit or maybe a lot, and yet we're still both within the bounds of historic Orthodox Christianity because we both believe, whether you're on the side of more free will or on the side of more election, we both believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. 
How that works, we might differ on our thinking on that. Another example, uh, we actually recently saw this. This is even lower on the scale of kind of open-handed, closed-handed, is the mode of baptism, right? Now, we believe that dunking someone under the water is the most symbolic way. We think that's probably what happened in the New Testament. Um, but at the same time, as a friend of mine has said, uh, man was made for baptism, or sorry, baptism was made for man, not man for baptism. So the mode in which we do that, that's a secondary issue. It's not a primary thing. It's open-handed. We can differ on that. We can have our convictions and do, uh, do what we normally do, but then we can also um, differ on it a little bit. I see a few of you are walking in and like, wait a minute, what? Time change didn't happen. We just switched it up today. So that's what's going on. All right. Um, so the other way to talk about these open hand, closed handed is the framework of primary and secondary. So the stuff in the creeds, primary, pretty important stuff. Pretty much everything else is secondary or maybe third on the list. Now, again, this is not to say that secondary issues are not important. That's not what we're saying. Secondary issues are basically why, at least within Protestant churches, we have denominations. Those secondary issues is what causes that. So again, baptism. Are we going to practice infant baptism or believer's baptism? Well, we could still consider one another Christians, but generally speaking, there are certain denominations who differ on these teachings, and so we end up collecting ourselves around how we see this and other secondary issues. Now, I say all of that to say this, and I want you to hear me say this to you as your pastor, as one of the elders of this church who is charged with guarding the doctrine and teaching, it's very clear to me that after a lot of reading, thinking, and praying over the last year, year and a half, uh, the role of men and women in church leadership is a secondary issue. It's an open-handed issue. It is one in which we may not be able to be in a church together over, but it is a secondary issue. So there are people who believe differently than we believe about elders and pastors. They are well within the bounds of Christianity. They're just different than us, all right? Uh, so this is a very important secondary issue. I don't want to minimize that. I would say it's on the level of the example I used earlier of the doctrine of kind of election or free will. It's kind of on that level, pretty close, but still secondary. Uh, very, very important to how you view and interpret the Bible, which is basically all secondary issues come down to how you interpret the scriptures, but not a primary issue that puts you outside of the faith, okay? So uh, this is an issue that creates the need for different church expressions among Protestant churches. So, for instance, in our own neighborhood, uh, Lansdowne United Methodist Church, Lansdowne Worship Center, they believe differently than we do about this topic. I know both the pastors there. They love Jesus. I know people in those churches. They love Jesus. They love the Bible. That's not the issue. They just interpret things differently than us. Uh, and so uh, this is a secondary issue, but it's an important one. Now, I say currently for us, as an Alliance church, um, I, what I want you to know as members and participants in an Alliance church, this is an important discussion that's happening right now in our denomination. You may not even be aware of this. This has been a topic of discussion at the national office level for about a year now. So we're talking about what this means in terms of, let me give you an example. In our denomination as it stands, we don't ordain women. We don't give them the title pastor and reverend. And what that means is there are certain women who have come and said, hey, I, it's, my church is affirming that I have this gifting. I feel called. And it, let me give you a, a particular example. I, I am in the realm of chaplaincy. And unless I have the title reverend, I can't fully participate in ministering to women at this prison because I don't have that title. And so therefore... I'm unable to practice ministry that way. So our denomination is saying, okay, what do we do with that? How do we, since this is a secondary but important issue, how do we handle that? So our understanding, according to how we read the Bible as an Alliance Church right now, is that there are two formal positions of leadership in the Bible in the local church. Those are the offices of elders and deacons. We see them in the New Testament. Acts chapter 6, you see sort of the forerunners of both the elders and the deacons as you see the apostles uh, commission the seven to take care of a particular issue. So the apostles are sort of a forerunner to elders in a local church, and the seven are the forerunners to the deacons in the local church or the servants in the local church. Okay, so having said all of that, um, I, I want to just walk you through this. I'm not going to be able to give you a detail. I mean, there's so many more things we could talk about, scholarship, interpretation, which I love. 
Uh, so if you want to keep talking about it or I pique your interest in something, I would love that. Uh, but I do want to let you know that that's what's happening in the Alliance, and you're a part of that. Uh, so I would just encourage you to go cmalliance.org, watch our president's video blogs. He covers what we've been talking about as a denomination. Uh, also, of course, you can come talk to me. I'd love to just walk you through what's happening and help you think through it. Now, having said all of that, here's our current understanding of the issue based on our interpretation of the scriptures, which we think points all the way back to creation itself. Our understanding, according to how we read the Bible, is that in the Bible, there's these two formal positions in the local church of elders and deacons. I'm going to spend most of my time today, if not all of my time today, talking about elders. But almost every qualification that I mentioned today applies to deacons as well, with one exception, and we'll get to that. But I also want to say that elders and deacons, we're still just regular Christians. Like, we're just church members, too, who are holding a particular role and I would argue for sometimes a particular season of life, you can be qualified. Uh, and I think you can move in and out of qualification sometimes when it comes to elders and deacons. Uh, but we are just regular Christians who should be growing in the fruit of the Spirit like anybody else. And anything I say today about authority or leadership is against the backdrop of what we said last week from the life of Jesus in terms of primarily thinking in terms of being a servant leader. So having said that, what we believe is that the office of elder, which for us is synonymous with the office of pastor, is limited to called and qualified men in the local church. That is where we land right now. Okay, And the office of deacon then is limited to called and qualified men and women in a local church. That, that's what we uh, believe. And so that's the framework I'm going to teach from today. Okay, that's where, I'm, that's where I'm at, that's where our denomination is at, that's where I'm going to teach from today. Again, I want you to understand there are good Bible-believing, gospel-believing Christians who love Jesus, love the scriptures, love his kingdom, who just happen to see this differently because they interpret things a little differently. So my encouragement to you is to read their books, listen to their sermons, listen to their podcasts, chew on it, and dig even deeper into the Bible yourself. So in the Alliance... At the local level, the elders hold the governance authority, okay? So I just want to help you understand this because many of us, I've been in so many churches, uh, well, not so many, but I've been in a number of churches where people have kind of superimposed American democracy ideals onto what they think the church operates like. And I just want to let you know, we are not what we would call a congregational church as an alliance church, meaning we don't vote on everything. There are some things we will and do vote on, but as an Alliance Church, we are led by the elders, which is why it's important that we have more than one elder so we don't have a king, right? We want to have plurality and parity among the elders, meaning multiple different kinds of backgrounds of elders who are all called and qualified who have the same level of authority in a church. Uh, this is because we think this is how the New Testament lays it out. Now, there are some things, that, again, we will vote on as a congregation, but by and large, the elders are the governing authority, which means getting the right elders is really important for us. Knowing who is qualified and called to be elders really matters. So that's my big caveat. Let's pray, and then let's dig into this text, all right? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the honor of... Um, seeing so many faces looking at me with attention right now, and even those who are online paying attention this morning. I just pray that these words that I speak, these qualifications we read over, uh, would be for anyone who is teaching them as much as it is for those who are hearing the teaching, uh, that it is your word that holds authority over us because it is Jesus' word and it is ultimately his church. And I just pray that we would all uh, grow together in submission to Jesus' lordship over our life, especially how it plays out in the local church, in our family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this is a quote from a Greek scholar named J.A. Hort, and this is from his commentary on 1 Timothy. He says this, To St. Paul, the representative character of those who have oversight in the church, their conspicuous embodiment of what the church itself was meant to show was more important than any act or teaching by which their oversight could be exercised. So, uh, I couldn't agree more with that. If I were to boil that down for us, it'd be this. Character always trumps competency when it comes to leadership in the church. I would argue that's a principle universally, but it, it is a principle explicitly in the church. 
When it comes to the elders of a local church, character always is going to trump their competency. You could be a great preacher, but as we'll see, if you're not qualified in some of these other regards, you're not qualified to be an elder in the local church. Um, as important as teaching is, right? I obviously value teaching because it's like my thing. Um, it's more important that the leaders of the church embody that teaching than be good at delivering the teaching. They should be good at delivering the teaching or competent, but it's more important that they embody that teaching in their own life. Okay, this is a constant reality that myself and I know the other men that are elders here, we feel the weight of because we've talked about this before. Uh, it's true for all of us who name Christ, but especially true for those of us who would lead in the church that my life is not my own life. My life is not my own. It was bought with a price. I can't just do whatever I want. I'm called to something greater than that. And in that, I have the privilege as one of the elders to call you to the same thing. So I want to dig in with you to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to just start in verse 1, and I'm going to go over the qualifications. I'm going to lay them out here for you. First, it's reputation, then his marriage, his self-discipline, his ministry, uh, his temperance and temperament, and then uh, it's going to give a word about his money, his family, his maturity, and finally his reputation again. So that's where we're going today. But first, what we want to start with is just the aspiration to lead. Okay? Look at verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, Paul begins by first affirming leadership as a noble aspiration. He says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, so we see it's a formalized position within a local church, the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So what Paul's doing here is he's hoping that certain men will aspire to leadership. So the, the literal sense of uh, oversight being a beautiful task really conveys more of Paul's feeling. So, so for those of us who are uh, men in the room, it's a good and beautiful thing for us to want to be servant leaders. This is true for anyone, men or women, but in this particular instance, um, what I want to say to you is we, we can't be afraid of leadership. We, we can't be afraid of leading in our homes and in the church. It's a beautiful thing when a man under the lordship of Jesus as a desire to be a servant leader, we set our hearts on the virtues listed here and we aspire to spiritual leadership. That is a good and right thing. I can remember where I was sitting in my church that this church reminds me so much of. I was in the back of the sound booth running everything for a uh, church membership meeting. And I can remember someone asking the question, well, I mean, where are any, are there even any young men here who would even be willing to lead us? And I remember that feeling, that calling, that Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it, that in that moment, I kind of like sheepishly, nervously raised my hand like, hey, I've, I feel something here that I want to help with. And then for the next five years or so, I began to have space for that in my church. Now, I wasn't an elder then, but I was beginning to have that desire. That, that's a good thing in a man and, and in a woman. I, I want to argue it's a particularly good thing for young men to aspire to this. That it is a good thing for younger men to want to lead in their local church because there are boundaries in the local church that will guard us again the flaws that young men tend to have. So it's a good thing for us to aspire to this. It doesn't mean that uh, every man in every church is going to be an elder, but it means that it's a good thing for us to aspire to. But we have to say, at the same time, a self-centered desire for position or power is a reason to be automatically disqualified from being an elder. Like if you want to be an elder, so people call you pastor or elder, that's a pretty big red flag. A self-centered ambition indicates that this person, this man as an elder, does not understand either the job or what's going to be required personally, professionally, as a lay elder. And this is uh, on the current elders of the church to help him understand, him or her understand. Uh, so the desire is good, but it alone does not qualify you for the office of elder. That's why we say called and qualified. Okay, so the first thing is this noble desire to want to help and lead. That said, Paul is going to list the qualifications for spiritual leaders. He calls them overseers here. The Greek word is episkopoi, uh, from which we get the word bishop, okay? 
this word, we, we, we see this as interchangeable with another Greek word, presbyteroi. I think I said that right. I don't know, though. Um, which is the word elders. We see that in Acts 20 and Titus 1. And so uh, we, we see from those different texts that these two terms we, we find are synonymous. They're the same person. Okay, the example given to me was, uh, as, as the man in my house, I am dad, husband, uh, the IRS sees me as, you know, a, a certain member of the household, that's all referring to one person. So in the same way, elder, uh, pastor, bishop, it's the same office in the local church, it's synonymous. So the list of the following characteristics is not an exhaustive list, this is really important. This is not an exhaustive list. It wasn't Paul's intention to sit down and go, okay, I need to think of every... He's giving the list, honestly, of the bare minimum for elders if they're going to be leaders, elders in the local church. So first, let's start just generally with the reputation of an elder. He begins in verse 2, an overseer must be above reproach. What does this mean? This, This is referring to his observable conduct. Okay, his observable outward conduct. What's apparent, and I didn't know this until I studied this uh, more recently, the, the fact that this and then verse 7 happen at the end of these qualifications is telling you that this is a summary for all the qualifications because the final qualification is also about reputation. Verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So this is supposed to be the reputation of an elder, that accusations against him have a hard time sticking, right? A a simple way to talk about this is if I was to, uh, if you were to come to me and find out I was a pastor, I'm an elder, and we've been friends for years, and I haven't talked to you in a while, and you find out I'm a pastor, you're like, what, you? That's not good. We don't want that, right? If, you, if we were to go to the elders' friends in our church and talk to them, oh, and they found out, like, you know, you have one of those parties where your worlds collide, like your church friends meet your unchurched friends or whatever, and they find out you're an elder, it shouldn't be like, this guy? Instead, they should probably be more like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Like, we don't agree, but like, I, man, I get it. His kid, yeah, it makes sense to me that he'd be leading in a church. I, get, I mean, yeah. That, that's what this is getting at. Right, So the reality is that these are high qualifications and the office of elder is not the place to learn how to be an elder. That's discipleship. But the office of elder is not where you train to be an elder. It's for those who are qualified already and called to be an elder. This was a game changer for me at the church I talked about where I'm in the sound booth. My pastor said, it's not that we're telling men, hey, I want you to be an elder. We're telling men, hey, I see that you are eldering now by your character and your life. And we want to affirm that as the local church and give you this mantle. And so uh, every single one of the qualifications that we're going to talk about has to already be in place for us to recognize the call of God on the life of a potential elder. And so the office of elder is not the training ground for elders. Will you learn things as an elder? Uh, of course. But it is not meant for you to learn how to be an elder. That's, that's a wrong way of thinking. So the first thing, uh, the elder's marriage. Verse 2, the husband, he has to be the husband of one wife. Okay, so literally, the, the words here translate to he has to be a one woman or one wife man. So the standard here is really high, especially given the culture Paul is writing into. But there is a an often misinterpreted way that this is seen. There's a common misinterpretation that says he can only ever have had one wife. And that's not really what the words mean here. So if he's ever been divorced or widowed, even in some churches, even if before he was married, he's disqualified. But if he's ever been divorced or widowed and remarried, he could never be an elder again in his entire life. The problem with this is that not only is that not actually what the words say, uh, but it actually creates a moral loophole Uh, in that kind of interpretation, which is that a man could be married to only one woman his whole life and not actually be a one-woman man. It's possible to be married and be unfaithful, right? So it's not about that. Uh, That kind of interpretation could allow a moral rationalization, and we see this over and over. Recently, we've seen this with uh, different big ministry leaders. Um, It's possible to be married and not be a one-woman Man, So the standard is actually higher than simply just having a formal title of being in a marriage. The, r- the right sense here is that he is truly a one-woman 
man. There's no other women that he looks at in the way he looks at his wife. He's totally faithful. He doesn't flirt with other women. He doesn't play around with that fire, right? He never gives his wife any reason to doubt that there are any other relationships in that regard that he is interested in. Uh, One commentator says it this way. He is a man who, having contracted a monogamous marriage, is faithful to his wedding vows, all of them. And if you think about wedding vows, they're all about faithfulness in difficulty, sickness and health, right? For riches, for poor. Uh, As the New New Living Translation says, he must be faithful to his wife, right? He has to be a good husband to his wife. The bar is high. There's no space in the office of elder for rationalizing. Well, maybe it means, no, the office of elder is important. Paul is simply speaking, um, to, to this church. And, and what I want to say here is that there is uh, a, a caveat in terms of this doesn't, we don't think this means that an elder has to be married, right? So there could be a, uh, a man who is a single man who is exemplary in his character who can be an elder. It's just that Paul is writing in a particular culture where getting married was a sign of a certain age of a young man. And if you're not married, it's probably because you're too young, okay? So there's not a particular age that you have to be to be an elder, and you don't have to be married to be an elder, but this is a marker of character in your life. So with us, um, we we don't think this means a man has to be married, but in the kind of uh, general sense that most guys that are of age to be an elder are probably going to be married or on the path to marriage, they have to be faithful. Okay, next, he has to have uh, there's three qualities that are all kind of under the category of self-discipline or some of the commentaries I read said self-mastery, verse two. He has to be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable, okay? Uh, th- this is a must. You, you can't be um, a, a person of no respect. Titus, uh, the book of Titus also says it's an, a necessity for leadership uh, as this is among the list in that book as well. So in Titus 1, there's another list. This is one of those characteristics that is really, I think, diametrically opposed, particularly for young men, to so much of what we're told uh, that leads to the good life, right? Young men are told to be wild and like no control. But that's not what God is telling us. Uh, One pastor that I used to listen to a lot said, young men do better when they're like like a truck, a big semi-truck. They need to be weighted down to be fully stay on the road better. And I I think that's probably true. The weight of responsibility uh, can help with these things, but he must be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Uh, Elders must lead the way in demonstrating what this looks like. And the good news is that with God's help for all of us, in particular for elders, this is possible, right? The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if you're walking in the Spirit, as a Christian, and particularly for our time today as an elder, this is possible. So so this self-discipline that comes from God and his spirit uh, must be in the elder. The elder must be mastered by God, which leads to his ability to practice self-discipline in his own life. And of course, elders are going to grow in this as any Christian grows the longer they walk with Jesus. So that's his self-discipline, his self-mastery. Now his ministry, verse two, continues. He must be hospitable and able to teach. This is actually a twofold description, okay? Hospitality, which is philanzenos, I am sure I'm saying that one wrong, uh, means love of strangers. Uh, This is a telltale virtue of not just the elders, but of God's people as a whole, which is why it's important that their leaders demonstrate this, because as the leaders go, so go the people. So Paul told the Roman church in Romans 12 to contribute to the needs of the saints and to seek to show hospitality, meaning welcome people into your life, pursue people. Uh, Christians and especially leaders, it's not adequate for us to wait for opportunities uh, to show hospitality, but we're supposed to pursue them. Anytime, many times that I've prayed with Tom, he has said at the end of our time together, all right, now as you go, look for a way you can bless and be a blessing to somebody this week. And, and I think that's an example of this. And we're to do this without grumbling, which is what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, 9. So an elder should be a joy-filled host to people who are new and strangers, right? We can't be cold-shouldered people. 
We have to invite people to our table. And I think this means literally and figuratively. Uh, Our homes have to be places where strangers feel welcome. Hospitality is all over the New Testament, all over church history. And the writer of Hebrews is going to offer an interesting motive for this. He says, not to neglect to show hospitality to strangers because some have unknowingly entertained angels, right? This is how God feels about hospitality. Now, this call to hospitality is, again, paired with able to teach. This is an important one. This is an elder ministry distinctive. Paul, Paul in Titus 1 gives it a little bit more of a full expression. He says this about elders. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. So he has to teach doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. So what is this demand of an elder? This means that as elders, our call is to be students of the word. Our call is to look at the scriptures, compare them with one another. We have to be able to communicate the scriptures. When necessary, we have to be able to uh, give reasons for our faith, help defend the faith. So to be an elder is to be a leader when it comes to learning. There's There's a saying from kind of the business leadership world, leaders are readers. I think that's even more true among the elders. We should be, as elders, leading the way when it comes to learning uh, making sure that our doctrine is well thought out and, and, and applying to the different issues of our day and age in which we find our church. And so this particular requirement of being able to teach is the one qualification that makes elders different from deacons. And it's connected to authority, and we'll, we'll see that in a little bit. Um, th- this is why the elders have the place of authority in the local church, that they lead the local church. Deacons don't have that authority, and there are many churches where deacons end up operating as if they're elders, but they haven't had the calling and the training to do that, and so you end up with kind of a a weird situation. Uh, Deacons don't have authority to lead the church, um, and and that's connected here to the requirement of elders being able to teach, because authority ultimately comes from Jesus, which he communicates to us in his word, which the elders then teach to the church. So the mode of teaching can differ. Doesn't mean that every elder has to do what I'm doing right now. That's not what it means. Um, It it does mean, though, that they should be able to guide you by the scriptures as their authority as you navigate your spiritual walk. That's the role of the elders in terms of teaching. Now, we also see from Titus, and this is a part that I wish wasn't in here, frankly, uh, that an elder has to be willing to rebuke those who are going astray. And rebuke is a strong word. Reproof rebuke. We have to be willing to, if we see someone going down a road of bad doctrine or, or falling astray to say, hey, th- this is not what God has for you. And, and I think in particular, when it comes to teaching, part of my role is to help you see the false teaching that's in our world today, which is why so often I bring up current cultural issues. I want you to see that and see how those don't match up with what's going on in the scriptures. This is the least fun part of the job. Um, And if an elder relishes the rebuke, though, he's also disqualified from it. Like, you can't be wanting to fight people. Uh, We're going to see that in a few verses. Um, Because discipline comes from love, but doesn't mean that you enjoy doing it, right? I, I discipline my daughter, but I don't love it when it's happening. I do it out of love. An elder has to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it because he loves his church too much to let them go astray. This has to come from that servant leadership heart. And a servant leader, if he sees people going astray, the first question he's probably going to ask is, my goodness, what have I not taught them well? And he'll begin to ask himself how he needs to repent and how he needs to do better. And then from that place of humble submission to Jesus, come and say, I think we're wrong in this. Now, verse 3 starts kind of a temperance temperament uh, demand. Um, We might say self-control again. Verse 3, he can't be a drunkard. That seems like a pretty simple one, right? Literally means he cannot linger beside wine, okay? So this is an example of the falsehood of thinking that the early church had it all together. Apparently, the early church, in this case, needed an apostle to write to them to tell Timothy that alcoholics aren't ready to be elders, right? So they didn't have it all together. In Corinth, uh, right 
right where we read every week from uh, the communion sort of meditation, there are some Christians who are even in the habit of getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, which is actually why Paul writes the thing we read right before communion every week. So in in verse 8, Paul repeats this warning to deacons when he gets into the deacon qualifications, not addicted to much wine. And again to the elders in Titus chapter 1, verse 7. So again, uh, I don't think we need to limit this to just alcohol. This is an example of this is not an exhaustive list. This is a particular list. But I would argue that at the heart of what Paul is saying is connected back to this idea of self-discipline. Yes, alcohol abuse uh, might be a particular way this plays out, but it can also play out in any other addictive pattern in the life of an elder, right? Elders cannot be ruled by anything except Christ. Christians shouldn't be ruled by anything except Christ, and elders are the leaders, the the shepherds of that. So that's his temperance, and then his temperament is followed, it's kind of a logical uh, progression, and Paul gives in verse 3 a particular temperament for the elder. He should be not violent but gentle and not quarrelsome. Now, based on the not drinking and not violent, I wonder what kind of elder meetings happened at this church, right? Because the Greek translated not violent is literally not a giver of blows, right? To translate it for us, it might be not somebody who's ready to throw hands. You can't have hotheads as elders. I think we all agree that it's probably, again, not a good idea for the elders to start throwing punches at elder meetings. It might be entertaining for some of us, but it is not good for the church, right? Uh, This call to not be quarrelsome is more metaphorical, though, to a kind of attitude, to the kind of person who would do that, what we might call a hothead, right? Another translation says he must not be pugnacious. Uh, That corresponds as quarrelsome. This is a no-no for elders. We just can't be the kinds of people who want to get in fights. That's not what we're called to do. Um, gentleness is our MO as elders, right? Pugnaciousness is not a fruit of the spirit. Gentleness is. This, this is Jesus' style, right? Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says that he is gentle and lowly in heart. He's strong. Don't get me wrong. He is strong, but he's gentle and lowly of heart. And what we can't do, like so many often do, is use the one example we have from the New Testament where Jesus threw people out of a temple and say, oh, see, that means we can fight. No. Gentle, lowly in heart. Gentleness is fruit of the Spirit. And Paul describes this requirement fully in his second letter to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, verse 24 and 25. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Man, just like Jesus with me. That's what I think when I read that. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So here's a connection back to hospitality, the caring for the outsider, that you patiently put up with evil, enduring it. You correct your opponents with gentleness. Why? Because the heart of every elder is a heart that says, I want to see more people repent and come to a knowledge of Jesus. That's why. So the church cannot have as its authoritative leaders men who like to fight right? I've seen this in in elder boards I've been a part of. You give someone who likes to fight a little taste of power, it's a bad recipe. It leads to bad things. So elders must be willing to lovingly and gently and patiently rebuke, yes, but they must not be prone to arguments and fighting. They must not be prone to arguments and fighting. Now his money, and it's specifically our attitude towards it, plays a big role in the qualification of an elder, not a lover of money. Uh, Oz Guinness, he wrote this book called The Gravedigger Files. He says this, if a man is drunk on wine, you throw him out. If a man is drunk on money, you make him a leader in the church. This is, this is one of the most like opposed to American values qualifications I think we could have, right? If a guy has lots of money, that must mean that God has blessed him. Uh, it must mean that he's smart, that he's a good manager, he's practical. Uh, if he's been given power, it must mean that he can lead. Let's make him an elder. But Paul speaks so 
on the contrary to this in his pastoral epistles. This is 1 Timothy 6. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And again in Titus 1, for an overseer as God's steward, not as a king, not as a ruler, as a steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Again, I'm wondering, like, who was on this elder board? Arrogant, fighting, drunk, violent, greedy guys. I can see why it went bad, right? That doesn't sound like a good leadership team. Even Peter, in his first letter, when he talks to the elders, says that elders must shepherd the flock of God that is among them, and it must not be for shameful gain. In one of my favorite, uh, most memorable translations that comes from the KJV, uh, the King James Version puts it that elders must not be in this for filthy lucre. And I just like that because it sounds menacing and it sticks in my mind. No filthy lucre. The point is not whether an elder is rich or poor. The disqualification, the point about the disqualification is to be a lover of money. Right? It can be hard to have a ton of money and not love it. But it can be equally just as hard to be very poor and have a wrong relationship with money where you think it's going to save you. And either one of those is a red flag, a disqualification when it comes to church leadership. Let's keep going. His family. So Paul's going to get to the last three qualifications and he's going to get more specific and descriptive. Here's what he says about an elder's home. Again, assuming he's married and has kids. Verses four and five. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? That's a rhetorical question. If he can't manage his own house, he can't manage God's church. So this principle is especially uh, here cited because in the churches of these days, they met in homes. And so often it was the elders' homes that they met in. And so the word translated household here, oikos, is literally house, and it's the same word used in verse 15 as a metaphor for the church. So the man who is failing with his household, with his family, is disqualified from his other spiritual family, the church. But I want to I hone in on a key here. This is a real key for us, and I'm kind of preaching to myself for the next little bit, okay? So bear with me. The key phrase is that little phrase, with dignity, with dignity. An elder must treat his children, his household, which first and foremost includes his wife with dignity, not with shame, not with power, with dignity is what Paul says. Again, this goes to the disqualification of an elder. If he's one way at home, right, heavy-handed, mean, and at the church, he's patient and gentle. No, Paul says we want to know from your children that they are submissive, but with dignity, that they feel dignified, that they are image bearers along with you of God, that you are not just lording power over them because you're their dad. If an elder is keeping his house in order in a way that's undignified, he can't be an elder. It's not good enough that the house is in order. It has to be in order with dignity. The home is the proving ground of leadership in Jesus' church. And, I, and I'm not even saying it has to necessarily be the nuclear family because there are single men who could be qualified for eldership, but their interpersonal relationships need to look like this. They need to be exemplary and dignified in how they treat those closest to them if they're going to lead in the church. We don't bring a man on and make him an elder and then train him how to treat his wife. No. We disciple him before that and after some time of him treating his children and wife with dignity, then maybe we'll talk about the elder thing, not the other way around. And then we talk about um, kind of the last, rep, uh, the last one is kind of his uh, spiritual maturity. Uh, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, Paul's concern here is for the heart of this person who's a potential elder. The language here is really expressive. It, being puffed up is literally the same thing we, say, we mean when we say he's full of hot air. Right? Being puffed up, being filled with smoke, 
Uh, it's kind of like fantasy land where you're just quoting stuff because you think you're better than everybody else. Um, and, and this leaves you open to this condemnation of the devil. And Paul mentions this same kind of judgment uh, for elders who are, um, who, are, who are being mistaken for their pride a little bit earlier in this letter. So humility, which is seasoned by experience, right? Like if, if you get around somebody who's walked with Jesus for a long time, they're gonna have some humility that they didn't have at the beginning. This is, this is a qualification for eldership. And so whenever I read this, I think of Bible college me, and I'm embarrassed of myself, right? I'm so thankful, though, for my pastor, who at the time, who was experienced and humble, displayed to me the patience, the gentle rebukes from time to time that I needed to guide and grow 20-year-old me. I was so excited to show, I was like, I was in Bible college reading all this cool theology. I was excited to show everybody, not, not how exciting and cool it was. I was excited to show everybody how much more I knew than they did. That's what it was. And that's what you can't have as an elder. An elder can't find his identity in being better than everyone. It's not, that's not what eldership is about. And Paul is warning Timothy here about not moving too quickly with a new convert, which is interesting since he's just told him, don't have arrogant, drunk, fighting people in the elder board. But also, hey, take your time, right? Because the temptation for a young leader like Timothy is just to move fast and get different people. And Paul's warning him, no, no. Take your time with new converts. I think you can argue a very young man as well, because there's a particular danger and vulnerability that comes with being young in the faith that does not mix well with what is required of being an elder. And, and what Paul is saying here is our enemy Satan knows this. So Christian maturity takes time, but it is required for leading in the church of Jesus because it's his church. Now, the final, the final qualification takes us full circle back to the reputation, which is where we began. Verse seven, moreover, so he's restating it. He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Well thought of literally means he, he has to have a beautiful witness. He, he must have a beautiful witness with outsiders. So, so let's think about it. He will have a beautiful witness with outsiders if his reputation is above reproach, if his self-discipline is evidenced by being sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, if in his ministry, both inside and outside the church, he is known to be hospitable and someone who can teach the word, if, his, uh, if he's evidenced by not being a drunkard or not being, uh, having addictive patterns in his life, if he is not a violent guy but gentle, he's not quarrelsome, if in respect to money he's not in love with money, if he treats his family with dignity all the time, and if his maturity is seen and is established in his community, of course he's going to have a beautiful witness with those outside the church. This kind of a life will have a beautiful witness to what? What are you witnesses to? You're witnesses to the gospel of Jesus and his coming kingdom. And so this morning, when I came in here, it was 54 degrees. It is obviously not 54 degrees now. It's a little hot up here. Uh, but the heat wasn't turned on yet, and it's been cold for a few days, right? So I came in here, and I was like, "Woo, man, it's, chill it's chilly in here. So this room was not going to be a conductive environment for us to be together, to learn, grow, worship in, right? Even I, who like it a little colder, was like, it's chilly. So what did I do? I went over to the thermostat. I turned it up. Right now, it feels like I turned it up a little too much. Uh, and I changed the temperature so that over the next little bit of time, some of you are like, no, it's good. It's good in here, right? So over the next little bit of time, the next minutes and hours, the environment in this place would be conductive to our growth together. I think this is an example of the role of an elder. We set the spiritual temperature in the atmosphere in the church. And the way we live as examples... The way we live as examples and servant leaders for the rest of the church affects everyone, which is why the backdrop of servant leadership from the life of Jesus is so important. Now, having said all of that, the elders cannot possibly do everything that the church needs in order to be fully healthy. And this is an area for myself personally as an elder that I am learning to grow in. Uh, and so the New Testament gives us another specific office, which is where we're going to head into next week, called deacons. 
And that word there, deacon, diakonos, means servants, literally table servants. And so here's your homework for this week. I want you to read and study the rest of 1 Timothy 3 to see what it says about deacons. See what it says about elders too. And at the end, there's another section there that'd be great to read. And then next week, we're gonna cover that and we're gonna cover some of the specifics of what elders and deacons actually do. So let me give you a little phrase that I love that's helpful to differentiate between elders and deacons. Elders serve by leading and deacons lead by serving. That's a good uh, way to kind of differentiate the two. So that's where we're going to go next week. So let me pray for us, and then I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and we're going to uh, worship through music a little bit together. Dear Jesus, thank you for um, giving us this time together today, and I just pray that you would use this for your own glory, uh, and you would use uh, this lesson for all of us to be on the lookout for these kind of men in our church. And we thank you for the men that we have now who are serving in this office. And, um, and we, we ask that you bless them and their homes and their families and that uh, you would make us as elders the kind of people um, that if everyone followed, our lives would look healthy and like we're moving towards Jesus. And I just ask for your power in that because we can't do it without you. And we ask for your Holy Spirit's uh, filling in us that we would be uh, joy-filled and ready to serve our church as elders. And I just pray that you would uh, be with us as we sing now um, and uh, that you would uh, see this worship as worthy to you because of what Christ has done uh, on our behalf and by the power of the Spirit that is in us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, just want to say thank you for joining us. If you're watching online, those of you in the room, I uh, just want to remind you in just a couple minutes, we're going to take communion back in this room. Uh, I believe the elements are on the back table right back there with the black tablecloth. So you can grab yourself one of those and we'll be back in just a couple uh, of minutes. I want to just invite you, if you have questions about anything I said today, even if you're watching online, uh, you want to send us a message on Facebook or uh, on YouTube or send me an email, you can do that. Um, I know that there are uh, maybe some questions that some of this brought up, and I would love to walk you through those and answer those. Um, and so I just want to make that open invitation to you. So again, in just a couple minutes, we're going to spend a little bit of time praying for a couple specific things uh, that are kind of church family related, and then we'll take communion together. But let me speak this benediction over us as we kind of close out our public service. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. And the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.